Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, one of the features of our times you all know only too well is cancel culture. And there are lots of high profile cases which we see in the newspapers. They come via Twitter, celebrities saying the wrong thing and all of that. But uh, one of the most uh, important things which comes through to us uh, when we get feedback from you, the viewers, is people worrying more and more about what they can say and think in the workplace, whether it is in uh, private companies or in the public sector. There is a growing restriction uh, perceived by many people on what they can say, think or do. Now, quite often they want to know what they should do. Well, there is actually a, a possible help at hand. There is a, a new organisation called Counterweight, which has been launched this week. I'm very pleased that the person behind that is with me today. Helen Pluckrose is best-selling author. Her book, uh, Cynical Theories, was out last year, very critically acclaimed, and she is with me now. Thank you very much for joining me, Helen. Um, well, I'm delighted to be here. Could you just explain a little bit more about Counterweight? First of all, maybe why you started it up? After the death of George Floyd and the uh, BLM protests, a lot of companies, universities and schools started um, implementing policies and training procedures which are based very much on the Robin D'Angelo school of thought, the idea that everybody is um, socialized into white supremacy and that we have to be taught to see our unconscious bias and dismantle it. Um, and as, as, as well as this, there's also, um, obviously there's a, the gender issue as well as that always comes up with um, trans activists um, And, um, and and sort of prestige in society. So people started writing to those of us who'd been critical of these ideas um, in their thousands. Um, we just couldn't manage them all. So I set up a Discord server mm -hmm. in order to triage the people in immediate danger of, of being fired um, for not believing the right thing about race or the right thing about sex and gender um, and uh, provide resources, more generalised advice in the community for people with less urgent problems. So this has grown organically. There are now organisations forming around teaching, social work, um, engineering, tech, all these different areas in which um, people find themselves being compelled to affirm beliefs they don't actually have or that they don't think are ethical and that are not based on good science. The implicit association test is, is not good science. What, what kind of communications then did you have, Helen? I mean, you said you had thousands there. What, what were the sort of cases? What, were, what would people be worried about? You know, why would they be coming to you? It's interesting because most often when white people are concerned, um, it's because they're being expected to claim to be racist when they don't believe that they are. And they spend a lot of time um, telling me how not racist they are and how much they care about racial equality. When non-white people, um, often South Asian or black Brits get in touch with me, they're concerned about being pressured to testify to a certain experience of racism that they don't believe that they've had. And there's a feeling there often, they 
where I'll, they'll tell me how successful they themselves have been. Somewhat demeaned by this narrative that um, they are second-class citizens and that white privilege um, is a thing that permeates everything. And so, you know, if, if that's what they feel or if somebody can, how will Counterweight be able to advise them? What will, what will happen? What? Generally, so, so we have a, a sort of three-tier system because it depends what level of problem you have. We know that there are employers out there who want to put into place a much more liberal and open policy for anti-discrimination because they're getting in touch with us and we're helping them to do that. So we're saying to people, if you're just hearing about um, at, you know, non-discrimination and um, new policies, don't immediately jump to the conclusion that this is going to be a critical social justice authoritarian thing. To approach your employer, you need to make sure that they're aware of the scientific critique of these methods, if they're aware of the ideology underlying everything, and that it isn't compatible with, with people who believe themselves to have free will um, to evaluate, reject, or accept certain ideas. So that's liberals um, who believe in the power of the individual, the marketplace of ideas. It's also conservatives who believe in personal responsibility. Marxists um, believe that everything comes down to class. Is it right really to say yeah. um, th that this is sort of something which is perceived to be at least, you know, popularly that it's only people on the right who get, you know, worked up about this kind of thing. Um, mm. but, but in fact, you know, you're not on the right. You're, how would you actually describe yourself politically? I'm um, an ex-socialist who um, grudgingly accepts that we have to have capitalism but wants to tax rich people a lot right. and um, focuses and thinks that, that gender, racial and LGBT equality are very important. Mm. I believe that we have um, almost entirely succeeded with um, gender equality. I have not found myself to be... Um, discriminated against in any way. I think we still have a way to go with racism and homophobia. And I think trans people are a particularly vulnerable um, group, although it's trans activism itself, which I think makes um, a sort of a greatest hostility against trans people. One thing that people seem to know quite a lot about, or we hear a lot about, is unconscious bias training. Would mm. that be something that would come you know, within your concern? Is that something that you feel is something that people shouldn't have to do? Yeah, there's two concerns with the unconscious bias assumption. Firstly, um, it doesn't seem to work. It's based on the implicit association test, which people have found can show different results on the same day taken by the same person. Um, and it doesn't seem to link to racist attitudes either. So it, it's, and it unconscious bias training has 
been shown in some cases to have no effect whatsoever or to increase um, racial tensions. So it doesn't seem to work. Um, but on another level, um, it people's unconscious biases, whatever they are, are really their own business. This yeah, is uh, something which doesn't get discussed enough. It, we hear a lot about whether or not it works um, to train people to think in certain ways and less about whether we should um, be trying to get into people's heads and tell and discovering, insisting we know what they think and trying to change how they think. Of course, a liberal um, would argue that people can believe whatever they want. An employer, a, a society has an expectation that they will not behave in abusive ways or ways that harm other people. But, uh, you know, freedom of conscience is something that um, that everybody should have so we particularly hear from gender critical feminists who again are on the left um who are expected to put um their gender pronouns down to signify their gender identity and they don't believe in gender identity they have an ethical objection to gender identity up to the concept of gender which they believe incorrectly in my view to be a social construct but they have the right to believe that so um if they are being compelled to pretend to have a gender identity then that is um i i would say that goes beyond the allowances of, of freedom of belief mm. and freedom of expression it's not a matter of them insulting their trans colleagues or making them feel uncomfortable. It's a matter of, of private conscience, which is nobody else's business, really. The point as well, surely, is that with a private company, you know, people often say, oh, well, you know, a private company, it can do what it wants and all the rest of it, you know. Obviously, it can't please people. It shouldn't please people's thoughts. But what is the sort of position of an employee who, say, for example, doesn't want to take the unconscious bias training course? I mean, can they be compelled to? What, what is the legal position? As far as I, I know, there is no legal compulsion for an employer to do any kind of diversity training. As far as I know, and I'm not the one dealing with the legal side of things, um, there's just a strong pressure to do yeah. so. And I know this because a lot of people, one of the things Counterweights is going to provide is a consultancy service for employers who want to provide a kind of diversity um, training, which includes diversity of thought, you know, and it will be, um, it will allow people to oppose um, prejudice and discrimination from their own ethical framework. Where does your uh, new organisation, where does it fit in? if at all, with, uh, for example, the Free Speech Union. We, we've had Toby Young on the programme when he launched that. I mean, it, it sort of complements it in a way, doesn't it? It does. Um, when people come to us when they're, they're having a quite clear problem, we advise them to join the Free Speech Union. Mm. But our um, aim is for them not to need it. Right. Our aim is to help them to sort out their problem internally. It's if we fail and they face disciplinary action, then that's when they need the free speech union. So most often when we have had successes, and we've had quite a lot, 
Um, nobody ever knows we were involved. We have just helped out with template letters. We've practiced with people um, via Zoom, uh, provided resources and, um, and, and helped people to sort things out internally. We're particularly proud that we've managed to get a, um, a major charity to back off from spending a lot of resources on um, diversity training and instead spend those resources on um, very vulnerable um, people lacking basic food and medicine in other parts of the world. So, yeah. Yeah. yes, but no, nobody will know that we've been involved in this because we're responding to individuals, yeah. often the employ employee, but sometimes the employer will come to us and, and ask us, how can I do this um, in a way that will meet expectations but doesn't require me to believe in critical race theory or queer theory or post-colonial theory. Those three theories there that you just uh, enumerated, you actually went into them in considerable detail in your book, which I mentioned in the uh, intro, uh, Cynical Theories, which I think is a, a play, isn't it, on critical theories, the, the actual title. Um, Helen, you know, the whole point of your book is, I think the subtitle was why these particular theories seem to dominate and why they're harmful. Uh, I know that it's a whole book you've written on it, but what would you say if you had to sum it up? What, you know, why are they harmful? I think we all know, but I'd like to hear you say why are they harmful and how come they have become so dominant? I think that the greatest harm that is happening here is the the idea that people are divided by race, gender, sexuality into different kinds of knowledges, that there are these um, consistent systems of oppressive power running through everything and we can't see them. We need these critical theorists to point them out to us and then we can dismantle them. But this means that the assumption that those um, those power systems are always in play, are there, and we're always looking for them. This is why we called it cynical theories. Mm. So at the moment, I, a woman, I'm talking to you, a man, and there would be a power dynamic here in which it would be assumed that you would not um, believe uh, my point of view very well. You'd not accept that I could be knowledgeable or intelligent or know what I'm talking about because you have been socialised to believe that it's men who are knowledgeable and um, and intelligent and competent. So somebody who is using one of the kind of intersectional feminisms, which, which sees patriarchy and everything, could look at our conversation and they would find something in your, your body language, something in the way you speak, that will prove what it was they were looking for in the first place. Mm. So it really is a, a kind of interpreting um, these power systems and reading them into everything. And the, the worst thing I think of this is that people who are, tr are then trained to see the world this way are going to be much more afraid of, of entering it. I considered myself feminist until very recently, and I, I mean, I'm not very happy with the disempowerment of women that comes along with the idea that um, we're, we're generally regarded as less credible and less competent than men. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah, don't yeah. think it helps. Yeah, yeah. But it's also the case, is it not, that the these particular the critical theory, critical race theory, the ones you just mentioned, they did originate in the academic world, uh, largely. And so a lot of the people that 
you know, have been taught them have ended up in, for example, human resources, haven't they? And they've ended up in the kind of departments that would actually put such things into practice. Yes, uh, we, we've seen an industry growing. I would call it the social justice industry. Mm. So it's been since around 1989 that these branches of, um, of theory have really taken off and they've become um, actionable. So since then, a lot of people have learnt them, they've graduated, they've gone into various different um, spheres. So we see, uh, we see it a great deal in the humanities and in the caring professions, in the arts. We see it less in um, things like engineering and um, agriculture and that kind of thing, but it's still having an effect on on STEM, I've I just heard from um, somebody today who is extremely concerned about what's happening in his biology department, and I'm hoping to help him address that. So it, it's not as though anyone is really safe, but it's certainly affecting the, the arts and the humanities to a greater extent at the moment. I know this sort of sounds maybe a, a, a strange way of putting it, but how sincere are the beliefs that we're talking about here? I mean, or are they just simply being used entirely for political ends? So I think I'm often asked this question and I, I, I'm sure that there are opportunists who will always take advantage of any system of power, same as, um, you know, as far back as Chaucer talking about, um, uh, you know, priests taking advantage of, of the power that the church gave them. But for my purposes, I think we need to assume that everybody is sincere and we need to address the ideas as though they're sincere. Otherwise, when we just start saying, well, you're applying sort of nefarious motivations to people rather than addressing what they're actually saying, then we're going to fall into the same trap that the critical theorists do for example they will suggest that i'm actually secretly um far right or that i'm um, making an enormous amount of money out of um annoying almost everybody or that some way or other i am i am insincere and um you don't actually have to pay any attention to what i'm saying so i i would say yes i'm sure there are some opportunists in there but address the ideas rather than the people and uh, mind reading their motivations. Although at the same time, when you when you talk about you know people wanting power, uh, and this is a way of wanting power, maybe uh, one way of doing that is to is to construct a very obscure set of rules, isn't it? And you you could say that uh, in the case of these critical theories, uh, that in fact it's the way in which they are explained in the academic context, which is almost impenetrable, isn't it? I mean it's almost designed to keep people from actually understanding it. It was. I mean, if you tried to read Homi Baba or um, Judith Butler, who were yeah. writing in the 1990s, you'd have great difficulty. But since about 2010, the theorists have become so sure of themselves and so confident mm. that they're much, much clearer now. I think a 10-year-old could read Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility and understand it she um it, it's um it's 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 good because we can now get at it we can get at those ideas and we can show the problem with them but it also makes them much more infectious because yeah. it gives people a very simplistic and satisfying framework to put on the world and to feel that they're doing good by following it 
Do you think that's a harmful book, Helena? Uh, white fragility, uh, it's, um, it ex essentially exists to explain away why some white people might disagree with critical race theory ideas of, of white supremacy. So it just it closes down um, any possibility of um, legitimate disagreement. Mm. According to D'Angelo, defensive moves which um, depict white fragility include disagreeing, arguing, um, staying quiet or going away. So the only way not to suffer from white fragility is to stay put and agree um, that we do all live in a white supremacist society and we are all socialised into being white supremacists. I see. It's a sort of, it's a no-win situation, isn't it, really? I mean, you, if you criticise it, that's proof of what you are. Isn't that right? Exactly. It's, uh, you know, the catch-22 or the Kafka trap. And, th and this is what we've, we've criticised the theories for. It's less of a problem that bad ideas arise in the academy and they become popular because this always happens. But we have to be able to argue with them and we have to be able to point out the problems with them. And these kind of theories simply don't submit themselves to the marketplace of ideas because you have the choice either you agree with the theories because yeah. you can see them you have critical consciousness or you are woke to these systems of power and privilege or you're speaking into dominant discourses because of your socialization there isn't the possibility that you could actually legitimately disagree because you have a different worldview mm. so the marxists um for example they have been criticizing um this kind of theory the longest of all so mm. they've um, they believe that the, the focus on race divides the working class and it's um actually a bourgeois plan to take um the left into the academy and, and away from the working classes and um you know liberals uh we we've been arguing with them for for less long but we are trying um to get across the idea that Perhaps if you can see um, these systems of power and privilege, perhaps we can see how society works as well. Isn't there a room for discussion there? Is it possible for somebody to disagree with you? Uh, isn't, isn't reality actually a bit more complicated than you're suggesting? <laughs> it's more complicated, but also the one glaring admission, uh, omission in all of this is class, isn't it? Largely, yes. You get um, some mention of um, anti-capitalism. So, and there will be um, some people, particularly activists, who describe themselves as both Marxists and social justice activists, which doesn't really work too well together because Marxism and postmodernism are essentially antithetical. So you'll get that kind of mix, but you'll very seldom see... Um, much focus on the plight of the working class mm. because too many of them are straight white men. Mm. Mm. So the traditional Marxists will criticise um, social justice on these grounds. But the social justice... Um, and and that, that's where some good scholarship is actually coming from, particularly in post-colonial theory. That's where you see a big divide between the materialists from the Marxist tradition and the postmodernists, mm. And you get good scholarship into economics, law, 
government how the world is affected um, in material terms is an aftermath of, of colonialism which is worthwhile and then this scholarship is generally undermined by the um, what I would say was the postmodern kind of post-colonial scholarship in which we all have to have hysterics if a white person has dreadlocks or if twerking isn't considered a, um, a, a sort of major art form or anything, this sort of cultural appropriation and decolonize everything and tear, de tear everything down. Mm. This comes very much from the attitudes, biases, microaggressions, which come from postmodernism, which are Foucault, not, not Marx. <laughs> yes, exactly. The, interestingly, a, a few years ago as well, and you were part of a, a, it got a lot of publicity, but you were part of a very interesting project whereby you <laughs> effectively created, uh, as it were, fake essays, when it, and you put them in for peer review uh, in the academic world and used all the right tropes and the right language and the right ideas. I mean, uh, and, and they were passed and they were passed as being, they were treated as being entirely genuine, weren't they? I mean, can you t tell us a bit about that? Because a lot of our viewers won't know about that. Yeah, we, we got seven of our papers published in the end. We took the worst of the worst scholarship and we used it to argue um, for things completely consistently with what was coming out of those fields anyway. So es essentially, we were producing the the scholarship. It's um, it's a bit of a mistake, really, to think of what we were doing as hoaxes. I mean, some of it, um, it seems very silly. Um, for example, we examined, we claimed to have, have um, looked at 10,000 dog genitals in three dog parks in Oregon and then um applied black feminist criminology to it to discover that men should be trained like dogs in nightclubs so you know it, there's it was very very silly a lot of it and that that was why we got caught it wasn't that the journals themselves recognized that it was ridiculous it was that the public did and journalists started digging around and found out that the authors didn't actually exist but all of our papers um they are they they cite um, the theorists correctly and accurately they used the concepts really if they believed um, these ideas they shouldn't have retracted any of our purely theoretical papers obviously some of our papers had fabricated data we we used impossible or implausible data and then drew conclusions from it that weren't warranted because we wanted to see what the journals would do with that those papers need to be retracted because they're, they're you know they have false data but the ones which are purely theoretical um if they believe those ideas they they should keep them up there you wouldn't see a say a, a, a biology um, journal um, retracting a sound paper on some area of evolution if the um, individual then said actually I'm a creationist and I didn't believe a word I said if the, if the paper is either good and sound or it isn't. Mm. Do you think where do you think we are in the in, in the chronology of this particular phenomenon do you think that it sort of is flowering at the moment? You, you know, you, you talked about the, the writers of the 90s and, and how they've become far less prolix, far less obscure, actually, and that they're confident. So yeah. do you think that we are at the peak of this or of influence going down the other side, maybe? 
I, I think so. I mean, my perception at the moment is we've seen this bubbling up, this ideology. It's bubbled up in places like Evergreen College in the United States, where the ideas of Robin DiAngelo really took over and caused a whole riot situation. The they couldn't even have graduation there. It's bubbled up in young adult writing, where people have had to retract their books and the knitting um, community where uh, of, of all things so we've seen these sort of little eruptions of this social justice thing and at the moment I think what we're seeing in the US particularly is a genuine attempt at a cultural revolution mm. the the wide-scale protests really I think have hit the peak I am I am very concerned for uh, the US. I feel as though we here in the in the UK and um, and also Australia, um, we have more chance of, of turning back. We haven't gone that far. We can see um, how it's playing out in the in the US, and I, I am I'm hopeful that um, some of the pushback that we're we're seeing now is going to take hold and we're, we're going to step back before we get to to that stage. But you think America is over that point? I, I'm I'm quite scared for America. Yes, I, I don't think I, you know, it sounds um, melodramatic, but I, I don't think the possibility of of civil war is um, mm. is zero. You know, I, I think there is a a realistic chance of, of full-scale riots um, involving, in the end, the, the military, the, the the sort of right against the left, and um, mm. and and a lot of violence could take place. I, there, there's too much um, there, there's too much extremism sort of coming out of uh, the the US in in both the critical social justice ideas and the response to it. Yes. Well, look. In the meantime, Helen. Uh... How do people, is there a website they can go to to find out about Counterweight? Yep, counterweightsupport.com is where you will find us. And uh, there you can either ask for help or you can offer help. You can find resources to help you understand how it works better, yeah. template letters, um, or you can um, seek out our services for um, consulting if you're an employer and you want to do something a bit better, something a bit more ethical and effective to oppose discrimination in your workplace. <laughs> well, great. Well, look, thank you very much, Helen Pluckrose. Thank you very much. And um, all the very best with it as well. It sounds like a brilliant initiative. Thanks very much indeed for coming it was on. Good uh, talking to you. Yeah, you. that's it uh, for this week. So uh, we shall see you next time. And in the meantime, please do subscribe, won't you? Take care. Bye.